1: Hello and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that sifts through the stockpile of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham and I'm quite the opposite. So join us in our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So we're a few episodes in now, tying in with Film 4's full Studio Ghibli retrospective this summer. I'm Michael Leader, and I do all things digital for Film 4. I also host the Little White Lies Film Magazine
0: podcast. And I'm Jake Cunningham and I host a podcast for Curzon Cinemas. I work in commissioning for short films for Channel 4's Random Act show. And uh, this is my adventure. This is the, the fifth episode into my, uh, my delving into the world of Ghibli.
1: Exactly. Every episode, new, new, uh, new pastures. Yeah,
0: my world gets a little bit bigger every week. And
1: this episode, I think, in particular, is yeah. something new for you. Definitely. So this week is Princess Mononoke, Hei Miyazaki's 1997 animated epic. Mm. Yeah, truly epic in every sense. <laughs> so this is going to be a big episode, got a lot to get through. I think yeah. we should just
0: crack on. Before we do... Here's a quick spoiler warning. There'll be a lot about Princess Mononoke coming up in the next 20 minutes.
1: In an unspecified period of 14th or 15th century Japan, a young man named Ashitaka clashes with a boar demon and is infected with a curse that will eventually kill him. He sets out to look for a cure, and his journey leads him to Irontown, an industrial community led by Lady Eboshi, who seeks, with bombs and rifles, to clear the surrounding area of gods and animals and claim the forest for humankind. They're at war with a tribe of wolves who dutifully guard the forest spirit that oversees this natural pantheon, and Ashitaka forms a bond with San, a human girl the wolves have raised as their own. Will there ever be peace between humans and the forest?
0: So, Michael, in our plot synopsis in our other episodes, sometimes you've had to kind of flesh them out a bit, where it might just be two girls wander into a forest and find a, a lovely monster. Yeah. And, whereas uh, this one, I feel like that... That synopsis is quite dense. There's a lot going on here.
1: I, I had to end on a question there, <laughs> really, to to cover a lot of narrative ground. Maybe we'll get to that. But I guess if the context and history, there's just as much in that. Mm. We've covered a lot of 90s Ghibli before. This is when they're sort of at, at peak productivity. This comes straight after Whisper of the Heart. A big Stu at this point and Hayao Miyazaki has had successes with My Neighbor Totoro and later Porco Rosso, etc. But... Princess Mononoke was a project that he'd been um, developing for decades. There are sketches and uh, concept art from the late 1970s and early 80s of a princess living in the woods with a savage beast, um, a Mononoke. But that project, when he developed it, was was rejected and he sidelined it for, for well over a decade um, and returned to it in the early, early 90s, 15 years later. But by then, his storytelling sensibilities had grown at such a rate that he just started from scratch. And makes this mix of fairy tale, folklore, Japanese history, and the grand themes that we'd expect from him. There's a planning memo from April 1995 when he started again from square one. He says, Princess Monoki does not purport to solve the problems of the entire world. The battle between rampaging forest gods and humanity cannot end well. There can be no happy ending. Yet, even amid the hatred and slaughter, there are things worthy of life. It is possible for wonderful encounters to occur and for beautiful things to exist.
0: I love these director's statements. Every episode, he's
1: always got something great to say. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, there's a whole book of them. This is from uh, Starting Point, which is, uh, there's a great hardback collection of this, which has all of his director's statements up until 1997 and they're all worth a read because you watch these films and then go back and watch the, read these statements and it's like oh wow he was really thinking quite on yeah. a large scale about these films and
0: this statement definitely reads like he's in a bit of an emo phase as well
1: he thinks the world is uh, is doomed basically and this is his way of reckoning with that however on the production side of things things were going really well this was their most expensive uh, movie to date uh, cost 20 million dollars or two and a half billion yen but when it opened in uh, uh, november 1997 12 million people in japan saw it at the cinema it made 160 million dollars and became the highest grossing film of all time that year but this being 1997 a little film called titanic was just around <laughs> the corner so it was number one of uh, the all-time japanese box office for a short amount of yeah. time. Uh, but then it sold millions of copies on VHS, apparently in a market where VHS wasn't a big a big thing. People didn't buy home entertainment, but then they did for this one. And it was the first film ever to win the Best Film Prize at the Japanese Academy Awards. Wow. Um, That's an, an awards body that didn't really award animation at that point. And only two animated films have won Best Film, um, Princess Manokia and then Spirited Away. And then they made a best animated feature <laughs> category and sidelined them forever. But what's really interesting with Princess Mononoke, um, we touched on this, I think, slightly in our Spirited Away episode. This was supposed to be the big international Ghibli release. Right. Um, in the in the mid-90s, um, a guy called Stephen Alpert, who was a, an executive, an, an American-born executive in Japan, was hired to serve as Ghibli's head of overseas operations. And he was specifically hired to sell Ghibli to the world. Um, he actually released a book this year um, unfortunately, it's only in Japanese, so I'm relying here on a on a review on the All the Anime blog. Um, his book's called I Am a Gaijin, The Man Who Sold Ghibli to the World, which is a nice little Bowie reference in there. But um, the story goes that Buena Vista Japan wanted to buy the home entertainment rights for Ghibli's films and went to Studio Ghibli. Went to Toshio Suzuki, in fact, the producer who we talk about a lot as being yeah. the shrewd businessman behind Ghibli's success. And they wanted to buy the home entertainment rights. And he said, okay... We'll give the home entertainment rights as long as the international, uh, Walt well, Disney Studios, Buena Vista International, will release the next Studio Ghibli film, particularly in America. Because Suzuki saw that success in America often trickled back to success in Japan. So films, big internationally, would also be big, big domestically. Right. So they signed this deal where Disney would definitely distribute the next Steo Ghibli film. And then they turned in this film that's over two hours long. <laughs> it's violent. It's epic. It's a little bit, you know, plot heavy, it's very Japanese and so (laughs) let's say when Disney saw that they were a bit confused, they were expecting My Neighbor Totoro, they were expecting something short and sweet for the kids, Mm. so they immediately bounced it down to their more adult distribution label at the time which is Miramax which at that point was still operated by the Weinstein brothers Harvey and Bob Uh, so they suddenly had this film in their lap and of course Harvey at the time was known as Harvey Scissorhands a guy who would recut films to maximise their box office potential, but this gives rise to an anecdote, which I don't know if it's apocryphal, I think Stephen Alpert does refer to it in the book, so maybe it's not, maybe it actually happened where uh, Toshio Suzuki and the Studio Ghibli execs sent Disney slash Miramax, a package, and inside the package was a sword. And <laughs> it came with a note saying, No cuts. Which is just, just incredible, right? There's yeah, this sort of, um, you know, the, the chutzpah of that statement. Yeah. So there were no cuts, but it was aggressively internationalized. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a, an American dub. There's, an, there's a, an English script overseen by Neil Gaiman, the fantasy author of um, American God's fame and
0: Sandman the comic. Um, and that was released although it's not a kid's film in the way that Totoro might be, I still think there's a lot going on for international appeal here.
1: Yes, but unfortunately that bounced down to Miramax. They, yeah. they, they, at that point, say 1997, that's when they're doing, what, Shakespeare in Love? They're, they're doing Oscar prestige work, they're not doing animated films, yeah. there isn't that those lines of communication with specific fan communities, so it didn't do very well on its right. American release even though John Lasseter, um, head of Pixar at the time, really pushed for it and championed it. It had rev- a very positive review from Roger Ebert who we've talked about before, mm. is a great fan of Ghibli. He um, said in his review, it is one of the most visually inventive films I've ever seen. It then came out over here in 2001 in the UK. Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian gave it four stars. Um, it was reviewed well by... The reviews are still online for all yeah. of the, the UK find, outlets. I find the gaps
0: between these so fascinating. Like Nowadays, we're so used to something very quickly making its way around the world. Now
1: it takes years and back then. Yeah,
0: these are... Like that's like a five-year gap.
1: Exactly. Well, that's only been very recently they've closed that gap. Yes, yeah,
0: I suppose since Spirited Away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, or I'd probably say
1: even when Marnie was there, or, or from up on Poppy Hill, some of their more recent releases would take a year and a half sometimes to come out over right. here, and because of it's just the way with Windows and release, you know, release mm-hmm. strategies and so on competing, there's never a good time to release these movies, <laughs> so they have to find the right time. Yeah. But um, in two thousand and one. That it did have this UK release. Uh, and that, at the end of that year, is when I saw it. Right. The first studio B film I ever saw. This is the one. This is the, the Urtex. <laughs> I saw it at home with uh, my girlfriend and one of my best friends at the time, and it offered a dodgy Region 3 DVD <laughs> that had been going around our school that I think someone had bought in Chinatown in Manchester. And we watched that, loved it, and then w- right after went out to watch the first Harry Potter movie. Ah, the uh, traditional double-built. Yeah, down in Bury <laughs> uh, in, in Greater Manchester. Uh, so that's how I can remember <laughs> wow.
0: where I was <laughs> when uh, when Princess Monoke came into my life. I wonder at that point whether you were you were aware of anything to do with the studio or anything like that, or just that this was a singular thing that came out of the blue? It came out of the blue. I I,
1: I really didn't know anything. I I, I don't even recall if I even knew about any other animated films, you know, know, Japanese animated films at the time, like say Akira or Ghost in the Shell, these big ones that people know. I just remember hearing that this film was really weird. Mm. (laughs) You've got to watch this
0: film. It's so bonkers. And we did. Yeah and ultimately at the end of that day you came out thinking I'll take Mononoke over Harry Potter
1: Probably yes but then the other one the other films weren't readily available mm. I'd have to wait another couple of years until Spirited Away had its UK release. So, just as you said, you had to wait back Mm. then for these films. And I maybe waited a
0: little bit longer. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And you might have been a little bit young in 2001 to see this film.
0: Yeah, I had to wait until I was just old enough at (laughs) 25 when you can really fully appreciate Princess Mononoke.
1: (laughs) Well, I'd love to hear what you think of this film. Let's uh, move on to your review section.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
1: So, Jake, Princess Mononoke. What did you make of it?
0: I think this is this will go down as the one that I struggled with the most so far. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure. I'm sure there'll be many struggles down the line. <laughs> I've heard tales of Earthsea. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, is uh, one that may- maybe I'll love it. used you know, <laughs> to say? Um, because this is one of the ones the really big ones like Totoro Spirited Away Grave of the Fireflies Mm -hmm. and then this was the other and this was I knew the image of the wolf and the girl and the blood uh, and that was all I really knew about it but this was definitely up there with films that for me define the studio as Mm -hmm. I know it as an outsider yeah and the film starts there's a caption on screen it's talking about forests spirits (laughs) gods I think (laughs) I know exactly what, <laughs> what studio's film I'm in. yeah, yeah. Um, And I'm ready for another lovely adventure into a realm of uh, forest spirits. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that first caption definitely puts me in a, in a Totoro headspace oh, yeah. rather than a Whisper of the Heart. Or Grave of the Fireflies headspace. Y- exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm ready for some uh, kind of magical dancing nature. Yeah. Uh, And there is some of that. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of nature in this film. Yeah. um, What I wasn't prepared for was this horrific opening five minutes (laughs) uh, in which there is this enormous, rotting, possessed pig Mm -hmm. and a kid with a bow and arrow who's beheading people. Yeah, yes. Yes. It's just not prepared at all.
1: I love rewatch whenever I rewatch this and there's that moment where he you know the, the, he chops a guy's arm off and then a guy's head off with, with a bow and arrow. It's just so shocking yeah. and so I mean, excuse me, this does sound a little bit like a twelve year old, so
0: cool. <laughs> I get that's it. In a kind of boy's own adventure way. Mm-hmm. This must have been brilliant to see well, at the age that you saw it. Well, well, this is
1: what, um, what's key about this. And the, our route through the, the the library, as we've done it so far, has created this moment where it's nothing like what you've seen so far. Mm. But actually, Miyazaki, at one point in his career, was known for these great sweeping fantasy adventures that were aiming more at that Early teenage audience mm. than the kids that he would be, you know, sort of satisfying, entertaining with Totoro, etc. Yeah. Ponyo. So Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa, The Valley of the Wind were these big, epic fantasy uh, adventures.
0: Yeah, it's kind of got this YA Lord of the Rings feel to yeah. it. I imagine as as a child or teenager going into this, it must have been fantastic, mm. I, and maybe the same feeling that I would have had going into a Lord of the Rings or something. Exactly. Yeah, um, and you are seeing things on a scale that you've never seen them before. Mm -hmm. And for me, seeing this as something with this epic uh, world-expanding approach full of battles and violence would have been so exciting. I I still found it amazing to watch yeah. uh, and I just felt that it, it kind of gets bogged down in its own mythology and story and you always wanted uh, not to endorse anyone doing this but I would, like want someone to go in at the start and just say right we can take that out and that out and that out um, <laughs> Well, yeah. we, well can, we... we can strip this down a bit
1: <laughs> well he'd been burned before so when Castle in the Sky which was the first film they made under the Stuart Ghibli banner when that was um, released there was a bit of tweaking to that now Sakeo the Valley of the Wind was a bit tweaking to
0: that on the international scale Whereas with this, this is whole cloth, you know,
1: Hayao Miyazaki.
0: Yeah, the ambition of it is Mm -hmm. what I really like about it. And I suppose, yeah, if someone had come in and started making those tweaks, we wouldn't have this film as it is. Mm -hmm. And I really admire the film for what it is.
1: What I what I what I respond to on every rewatch for this is the complexity of the ideas. Mm. On our Totoro episode, I, you you quoted me saying I thought that was the perfect Miyazaki film because yes, of its laser so. focus, its precision focus. This is a film that is baggy. This is a film that has so many ideas, competing ideas, confusing ideas. Um, you know, and the right at the heart of it is this notion of the gods versus humans. Nature is a good thing, but the gods are being set in their ways, or they're uh, being tempted into anger. And and fear and mm. doubts, and the way that humans are, are actually quite progressive. It's the the hand of history and of the future is on the humans. There, that's you know Lady Boshi when we meet her, she is a very progressive uh, woman. But some of the strategies and. You know, techniques they use is destroying the, the earth and mm. will lead to what I assume Miyazaki's looking at in the 1990s as global warming, the ozone layer, all of these you know, uh, intense urbanisation of the countryside, etc. That's what he sees as the end point. But along the way, there are these things worthy of life, as he says, mm. and there's no straight moral compass in this film.
0: It is quite complex, and I think it, it has to have all the narrative threads that it does, to gain an access point to all of those ideas that he wants to talk about. If we go right back to the very start, we've mm. got this this boar god who has been possessed by a bullet from an iron worker, an industry person. Mm. Uh, and that is what has destroyed this kind of guardian of the forest. And that's almost our first scene and is one of the most memorable images from it. This kind of cascading black goo and the red eyes of mm. this creature and we're we bordering into horror, and yeah. it's it's quite shocking. And it, like there are a number of images like this, and also the apes that appear yeah. in the film also have that similarly shadowy feel and these red eyes. It's pushing you into that fear territory that none of the others really have. That rather than just saying right, here's the majesty and the wonder of nature, here's look. Let's look at the other side. Let's. Uh, look at the damage that's being caused to it as well. And
1: it's a a conflict that's right there at the heart of Miyazaki's films. He's very nostalgic for both the countryside, but also for early 20th century technology. He loves planes, particularly from the interwar period. He loves trains, as as we've said. He loves loves a train. But you can't have the benefits of the Industrial Revolution and a pre-industrial world. Mm. So that's, there's, a, there's a real tension there that is played out in this film in particular.
0: Yeah, well, there's a, there's a line uh, later in the film, which is, uh, Can't the forest and the ironworks live together? Why and they're not like, both. That, that is, <laughs> that's miyazaki's yeah. Like that's the same thing that we've seen in a few of the films as well. And I think something that underlines all the work.
1: But there's an interesting tension here between traditional and forward thinking industrial process and the actual way the film is made. You said that there, there were a few things that looked a bit different for yeah, you.
0: Yeah, time. it does in a in a quite an odd way and I couldn't quite place it. It felt like Sometimes the people in the landscapes were operating on different planes mm. and the way that some things were moving had a very different fluidity mm. than what I was used to.
1: And that's because this was the first Ghibli film to use extensive CG sort of animation um, to, to, in, in certain shots. In the past, it was all hand-drawn, traditional techniques and so on. Um, and this is around the point where they realised that that sort of um, uh, all-time crunch time work environment wasn't particularly healthy so they start using CG in some sequences there's a great breakdown on I think it's Nausicaea.net that has some of the specific shots they use one of which is the, tr- the transformation of the boar god at the beginning when it uh, transitions into a skeleton after he's mm. killed and then later on it's these uh, these tracking shots if you ever see um, Ashitaka on well it's not a horse it's a on, on Yakul, as he's uh, <laughs> riding across the landscape, those amazing f- fast tracking shots, yeah. that's where they can dynamically shape the, the backgrounds using CG as opposed to using hand-drawn techniques, which was incredibly labor-intensive. And this is the point where hand-drawn starts to be assisted by CG. Right. Um, and it's quite rudimentary at this point, I think. Mm. Looking back at it now, you can see there's something up.
0: Yeah, I think that particularly those those landscapes, mm-hmm. uh, they occasionally do feel a bit flat and you don't really get a sense of... Uh, like feet, maybe landing properly on the ground. Mm. It's almost like everyone's floating right. just a centimetre above it mm-hmm. and not properly interacting. But um, when we get down the line to the more modern films, where maybe that integration is a bit more cleaner, mm-hmm. um, like those lo- those lines will blur a lot more. Yeah.
1: What I'd like to ask you about, Jake, is the the, the familiar elements that are here. Mm. When you go into the clearing in the forest and you meet the forest god and the Kodamas and what did you make of
0: that? Yeah, well, I think in, in every episode, uh, without planning in this show, uh, we've picked out a highlight scene that mm. we would like to almost take out of the film and could live by itself. And uh, this is, my one from here is the the kadamas. these weird uh, little, they look like they're made of pebbles. Who have? But they've uh, got
1: very, they've got human anatomy. They've got nice little little yeah. butts there. <laughs> when they're when really they're yeah, they, around the Gratuitous butt shot. Yeah.
0: Um, of the, these little creatures that live in the forest, who twist their heads around and click their necks—yeah, uh, very odd—and um, initially quite unnerving, but they grow to become quite cute mm-hmm. as well. And there is this this moment with the deer god, mm-hmm. who, unlike the the other, like the boar gods or the wolf gods, who seem to be separate entities, the deer god seems to be all of nature all at once. He's the ultimate guardian. And there's this moment with um, the deer god entering a lake. It's got this ethereal green hue to the edges Mm -hmm. of him. And then there's a shot from the top of the trees where you see the Kadamas in the trees looking at the deer god. And they've got that green glow to them as well. And the only thing I could really draw a comparison to is the island from Life of Pi. The Ang film, right, um, where he goes to that island which doesn't really seem to exist, mm-hmm. and there's a tooth in the middle of it, right. but it's got this green glow to it, and it feels like this complete dream, mm-hmm. it's, and that you again could just sit with it in an art installation all the way around you, and you just want to su- submerge into it. Uh, and that's why I felt with this dear god and yeah. as as this separate moment. I'd love to lift out, just it's such a stunning. magical
1: place and a moment. And again, that that forest god, like the Kadamas, is both cute and, a, and, a, and attractive as, as, mm. as a design, but also quite creepy and strange. Mm. The fact that it has this
0: sort of human face. Oh, but that's weirdly... I was trying to figure out what made it weird. I think it's because <laughs> it's perfectly symmetrical. Right. Uh, which, naturally, we don't have as real people. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the fact that he almost looks down, right down the centre of frame, and his face is <laughs> immediately central, and it's like he's looking right into you, and mm. he's telling you what are you doing to nature? <laughs> <laughs> but
1: so, Jake, the second half, of the, the latter back half of the film is where this plot, as we talk about it, all comes together. Yes. That you have this clash of multiple factions. You're not sure who to really root for. And you have Ashutaka in the middle who's yeah, trying so to do everything.
0: We've got Ashutaka. We've got the Ironworks. We've mm-hmm. got the Wolves. We've got the Boars. Yes. In one corner somewhere, we've got samurai.
1: Well, the, the emperor has sent out the samurai to get the head of the forest god because it's believed that it would make him immortal. Right. And they're just
0: thrown in there yeah. as well on top of everything else. And this is where it lost me a bit. Uh, there's a proper kind of 40-minute period in the middle where I just lost track of mm-hmm. who anyone is in relation to each other because of maybe this issue well in other films it's not an issue that Miyazaki doesn't really have an antagonist mm-hmm. and in this he's determined not to have that either mm-hmm. but it's tough to figure out who really needs to benefit from what and actually the screen geography I struggled with as well okay. couldn't really tell how far apart things were and thinking oh well aren't the boars with them so surely that should only take him a minute to get there but then actually that's a whole nother chase scene to get there and uh, yeah I got lost but then the deer god gets beheaded, and he grows into this <laughs> enormous kaiju creature. Exactly, and yeah. then then I'm back into it. I, the, the kind of last twenty minutes, I'm back into it. I can imagine the, the final
1: five minutes in particular is where you get back into it. One mm. thing you've definitely mentioned before is Ghibli's use of blue and green. Yeah, and when the night when the walker slash forest god finally is, is placated, and he crashes down on the valley, douses it in whatever life giving force or whatever mm. it is, and it's reborn. Yeah. It's a beautiful landscape, I'm yeah. sure that was... I, f- I find it so fascinating that this is what lost you because um, this is probably the the film, the Super film that is most anime. Right, um, okay. When people talk about anime, they think of, you know, big emotions, boy and a girl, and these big forces and then lots of plots and lots of babble. Um, Something I always go back to is there's a great fan sub of uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion where for these scenes of um, big robots fighting each other, they just gave up and the fan sub uh, subtitle at the bottom was just balls 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 (laughs) over again. And there's a little bit of that in this. Um, Miyazaki in in the 1980s was a manga writer and artist who'd make epic length, multi-volume stories and this is that crammed into just over two hours. This is actually the film I probably have rewatched maybe the most of the oh. daily films. Probably because it's sort of the first one I saw. Yeah, but it's one that I find so rewarding on every rewatch because you just see these levels of themes, the the craft that that goes in as a storyteller into trying to put Ashitaka at the centre. of of as the moral center amongst all of these flawed characters you know the the the, the gods are, are egotistical or arrogant the humans are arrogant but they're also uh, plowing forward Lady Boshi has brought took in lepers she's um, liberated these women from brothels and has created a matriarchal society in Iron Town and that is something that we should feel really good about and all the characters there are actually nicer and more appealing and funnier than and charismatic than the wolves and the gods that we don't actually you know as audience members we don't like those characters mm. as much they're not funny or charming but they are also on the side of nature and what's beautiful in the world so it's just this something it's a real head scratcher as you watch it yeah as an um, audience
0: member yeah after hearing that your passion for it there and like normally we, we kind of agree on these things mm. uh, on our rankings as well um so i'm fascinated to hear where Mononoke is going to land on the leaderboard oh yes The leaderboard, the section of the show where we force Michael to pick between his favourites. Now this is the one that came to him as a child. It, <laughs> it was a it was a light that guided him through the forest. Yep. So far Michael's ranking is Whisper of the Heart number one, My Neighbor Totoro number two, Grave of the Fireflies, number three, Spirited Away, number four, Where are we gonna put Princess Mononoke?
1: Well I think I've said in the past that really these these films that we're covering on this program, they're all good. I, I, mm. I'm a fan of pretty much all of them that we'll cover. And therefore, ranking them is almost like, yeah. you know, th- th- there's such gradations between them. I think this is going to be the new number four. Mm. So it's ahead of Spirited Away, just slightly behind Grave of Fireflies. And for me, that's just this question of perfection versus flaws. I think that this is a film I revisit more often than Spirited Away. And it's a film that I find more rewarding than that. But Grey of the Fireflies and Maddie Batotaro, I think, are perfect and the peak of both the directors' mm. careers. And then Whisper of the Heart will always be my number one.
0: It is Michael's choice.
1: So <laughs> that puts uh, Princess Princess Marinoki at number four okay. in the
0: leaderboard. And in our next episode, we'll, uh, we'll get number six and maybe our, our last addition to the leaderboard for maybe a short while at least. And we've got a special guest. To we have indeed.
1: One. So Whisper of the Heart was Michael's choice, as Jake said in the past. But next episode, we have esteemed Ghibli fanatic and Telegraph film reviewer Robbie Collin coming on the, on the show to present Robbie's choice which is Only Yesterday. It's our Takahata's film from 1991, which I can't wait to talk to Jake about because, again, it's another sharp
0: turn. Yeah, I'm excited to bring this one off the shelf for sure. Now, we hope you've enjoyed your time in the Ghibliotech. If you want to, you can follow us both on Twitter, Michael's at at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Thanks
1: for listening. Bibliotech is a little dot studios production. We record at Soho Radio. Our music is made by Anthony Ying. Our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and Steph Watts helps us out with all of our GIFs, images, and anything else we post online. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, and Harold Cheal. That's me. I do the voiceover for the end credits as well. Hi everyone, thank you for staying beyond the credits. We like to uh, reward our faithful listeners with a little extra nugget. We did mention in the context section that Hei Miyazaki had been working on Princess Maranoki for decades and had a plan and concept art all the way back in the 1980s. Well, that concept art, uh, when he revisited the project in the 1990s, was sidelined and published as a storybook. This was actually the idea of Toshio Suzuki, the producer, who, as always, has Studio Ghibli's business on his mind. But you can buy this book. It's actually very different from the finished film. It's about a young girl who's married off to a monster who lives in the forest, a mononoke. And he may look a little familiar. He basically is Totoro with the face of the cat bus. But I'd recommend you check it out. It's a gorgeous book full of Watercolor sketches by Hayao Miyazaki.